You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Your host for Heart Matters is Dr. Jack Lewin, Chief Executive Officer of the American College of Cardiology. What role do physicians play in the development of medical devices? How can we reward responsible medical innovation, advancing us into future decades of ever better patient care? Our guest is Mr. Steve Ubel, President and CEO of AdvaMed, the Advanced Medical Technology Association located in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Steve. Hi, Jack. Good to be with you. Thanks. Can you start by providing an overview of the composition of the device innovation industry? You know, the numbers of firms out there, the size of these firms, the investment in R&D, just a general overview. Sure. Well, we like to think of the medical device industry as really a crown jewel of the American economy, comprised of high-tech, high-growth, high-wage companies that are the lifeblood to many small communities across America. You know, communities like Kalamazoo, Michigan, Warsaw, Indiana, Glen Falls, New York. A lot of communities who've seen other industries either leave or falter have found you know, medical technology companies are a key economic driver. The industry is comprised of a lot of small companies, actually dominated by small companies. About 70% of medical device companies have less than $100 million in revenue. We have over 350,000 employees uh, nationwide. And the, as I mentioned, high-wage jobs, they pay about 30% more than the average manufacturing job. So it's a key economic driver in the U.S. The industry leads the world in the development of advanced medical technology. Perhaps more importantly, it's uh, had a huge impact on human health in terms of reducing mortality across a range of diseases. And we think a big part of the solution to rising healthcare costs. Oh, yeah. Well, it's amazing how this country subsidizes the improved health of uh, the rest of the world, particularly in terms of devices. What's the investment of, uh, what would you guess, of just the the whole universe of R&D investment with respect to devices? We spent, as an industry, about $10 billion in uh, research and development in 2007, which is the last year we have data. So it's a very research-intensive industry. The innovation model for medical devices, as you know, is very different from that of pharmaceutical products. It's marked by rapid incremental innovation, working in partnership with physicians. Now, I sort of contrast it with a pharmaceutical model, which I view as uh, a bit like the Big Bang Theory. You know, a company will test a compound for a number of years and find one that works and have uh, a period of patent exclusivity on the drug, and the, and the drug doesn't change over time. Whereas on the device side, again, in a typical life cycle of about 18 months, rapid incremental improvements that are generated through partnership and involvement with physicians who are using the technologies and making improvements along the way. Very good. Well, you know, how does um, the device innovation world differ from that of drug development, and, and what's the role of physicians in the development of devices? Well, it, it, it really is a very different business model, as I was describing. You know, medical technology companies are really working in constant collaboration with physicians. In some ways, companies are commercialization, you know, arms of the ideas that come up from physicians and nurses and other healthcare providers who are, who are working in patient care. So really, medical technology is a natural extension of the, uh, you know, the physician work and devices are continually improved 
as a result of that interaction. Yeah, and, and doctors are a key part of that, obviously. We've had recently been almost attacked on the basis of ethics and transparency and relationships with industry by folks who think that somehow the conflicts of interest are, are out of control. Yet I know that the AdvaMed folks, as well as the American College of Cardiology and others, have taken some major steps to try to put out principles that make sure the relationships are clear, transparent, and above board. You know, anything you want to comment about in that regard? Sure. AdvaMed is very proud. has been a leader in the development of the Code of Ethics, which we first developed in 1991, which has gone through several revisions since then. And we just, in fact, uh, launched a substantially revised code within the last year. But we certainly, you know, would agree that interactions between healthcare professionals and medical technology innovators are absolutely critical to patient care, and they need to be ethical and transparent. And we think the code provides that clear guidance to companies on how to manage those relationships with healthcare professionals. But as you said, that relationship between physicians and companies is the lifeblood of the innovation process. So we absolutely, yeah, absolutely. have to preserve that ongoing collaboration. And patients benefit from that ongoing collaboration. So we want to make sure that those uh, interactions are clear and transparent and ethical. Uh, there are, are clear understandings of what's acceptable behavior and what's not. But we can't afford to jeopardize that collaborative spirit. No, that's amazing. And, and there's so much happening in the field of cardiology in particular. You know, this collaboration has produced a 30% reduction in morbidity and mortality in the last decade, which is enormous. You know, we're, as a nation, supposedly, we're not sure, but we're supposedly <laughs> poised on the edge of some kind of health system reform. And while you and I would like it to be about uh, improving innovation that improves quality of care and well-being and, and wellness and so forth, it's really a lot about costs, and the costs are, in fact, a problem. So what is the percentage of healthcare expenditures, would you, would you guess, that uh, the nation spends on medical technology and devices out of that $2.4 trillion? Rather remarkably, medical device spending over the last uh, 18 to 20 years has uh, been fairly constant, about 5 to 6% of overall healthcare spending. You know, perhaps more importantly, uh, over that same period of time, medical device price increases have risen about half the rate of CPI and about a quarter of the rate of medical CPI. So our, our track record, we think, is pretty strong in the sense that, that we've maintained a fairly small and constant share of overall healthcare spending. And in terms of uh, price increases, we've actually been deflationary compared to other sectors within healthcare. So we continue to believe that medical technology is a solution to the cost problem. You know, if you talk about what's really driving costs in, in the system, I think you can focus on two things. One is chronic disease. Medical technology can play a key role there. You know, within cardiology, obviously, you're looking at conditions like congestive heart failure and how medical technology can keep people out of the hospital. Congestive heart failure is one of the most expensive DRGs uh, within the hospital. And uh, remote monitoring technologies, for example, have the promise to you know, reduce costs by identifying patients' conditions at a stage where they don't have to go to the hospital or they can be treated by a physician without going to the emergency room. So there are multiple examples of how medical technology is going to help us address this underlying chronic disease problem that we have in the U.S. If you're just listening now, you're on Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Jack Lewin, and our guest is Mr. Steve Ubel, President and CEO of AdvaMed, uh, the Advanced Medical Technology Association located in Washington, D.C., and we're discussing the future 
of medical device innovation. And we were just talking about healthcare costs, which are exponentially increasing. Um, but, you know, there are benefits that come from devices and the new technologies out there, 5% of the total cost, a lot of benefit, and chronic disease out there. So let's let's go on with more of that, Steve. You know, not all the devices are created equal, and obviously we have to try some things that don't succeed. What do you see as the role of comparative effectiveness research in either encouraging or discouraging device innovation? It's a topic of, uh, you know, major interest, it seems. It is. Now, as an industry, we um, support comparative effectiveness research, but how it's structured and carried out is extremely important. It's used as a tool for physicians and patients to have better information about their treatment options. You know, we think there are a lot of benefits to comparative effectiveness research. I, I often use prostate cancer is an example where you have multiple treatment options and physicians and patients don't always have the best information about evaluating those various options for their particular needs. By the same token, we have to be careful, you know, given the innovation model that I discussed earlier where uh, medical technology is rapidly incrementally improved, if you assess a technology too early in its life cycle, you could stifle the diffusion of a future beneficial technology. You know, we want to make sure that we don't take a treatment option off the table simply because it's new and it hasn't been rigorously evaluated. Sure. We've got to do that rigorous evaluation. You know, another part of this, though, I mean, it, the, the comparative effectiveness part, I think, is going to happen because we clearly have a whole lot of things that are, for us as physicians anyway, are, are caught in a gray zone. We don't have enough evidence yet. And, of course, industry provides a lot of the evidence. And uh, it would be helpful if we could work together to see what the best priorities are for investment in those regards. But I think another big issue, Steve, that concerns a lot of us in cardiology and, and I think the whole profession of medicine is how to reward innovation and allow new technologies to take root and thrive uh, as part of health reform. Because we, we've talked about the amazing progress that we're making, but you and I know we could make even more progress and we could go faster at this. We're kind of holding ourselves back in some ways. How do we encourage adequate reimbursement for new technologies? let's say from Medicare, to make it feasible for them to be widely used? I think it's a, a great question. We talk a lot about the innovation ecosystem, you know, that it really takes a number of key steps for us to make sure that we can continue to lead the world in uh, medical technology. And, you know, I was struck by the president's State of the Union speech where he talked about making sure that America doesn't settle for second place in some of the new industries that are going to define the 21st century, whether it's green technology or what have you. The life sciences industry is an industry that's in first place, and, and I think we want to keep it in first place. And, you know, the way we do that, I think, is to make sure that each element of the uh, innovation ecosystem is cultivated appropriately. So we need, for example, a vibrant you know, capital market, access for small companies to develop new products. We need a patent framework that rewards you know, risk-taking and uh, innovation. We need a regulatory system that's predictable and is efficient while obviously uh, protecting patients. And we need a reimbursement system that adequately rewards risk. And if we're making incremental progress, that that progress is recognized by the reimbursement system. And I know that the uh, cardiology community has been quite challenged by government reimbursement policies of late. And we're also concerned about those policies because it's a part of this innovation ecosystem that has to function well for us to be able to bring products to market. Yeah, well, 30% improvement in morbidity and mortality over 10 years, and now they want to cut cardiology services that have fostered a lot of that by 40%. It just doesn't make sense in an in a, um, administration and congressional environment in which 
supposedly we're going to reward and incentivize better quality and better outcomes. Uh, well, you know, I, I think that's that's really important to pursue that a little bit because were we to provide a different kind of payment or, or incentive system, how would you see that happening that might enhance the deployment of technology out there uh, that would benefit people and reduce morbidity and mortality? Well, we very much support the underlying direction of where payment policy is headed, you know, broadly speaking, moving away from paying providers more based on the volume of services provided to aligning incentives and paying providers based on the quality of services uh, delivered. And we believe that that system will actually propel beneficial uh, new technologies. And I'd give you one example. We just partnered on a recent study that found that If we screened all hospitalized patients for drug-resistant infection, we would save $8.3 billion a year. You know, there are other examples of how, you know, establishing quality standards. You know, atrial fibrillation is is another example of a condition that is, uh, you know, very exciting in cardiology. It's a condition that's dramatically undertreated if you look at the landmark RAND research uh, from a few years back, which found that 50% of the time patients show up, uh, they don't get the standard of care. You know, atrial fibrillation is one of those uh, conditions where it's actually much higher than 50%. So I think to the degree that we can change the system so that we're setting quality standards that correspond to uh, undertreated conditions, we can actually uh, improve patient access and improve outcomes while at the same time diffusing beneficial technologies. Colorectal cancer screening is another classic example of if you were to pay providers uh, for meeting those quality standards of actually conducting the screenings, you know, we could save 10,000 lives a year. So if you're going to peg a reimbursement off of meeting those quality standards, we think it's a step in the right direction. In terms of uh, the steps we can take to invest and accelerate medical innovation, uh, why don't we close with your view of the FDA and how we can strengthen the FDA approval process to ensure safety, but also without weighing down the process. Any thoughts there? As you point out, it's FDA's role to ensure that safe and effective products get to patients. But the key part of their role that's not well understood is that they are also responsible for facilitating innovation and uh, improving patient access to life-saving and life-enhancing technologies. So we shouldn't lose sight of their dual mission, if you will, to protect patients, but also to facilitate facilitate patient access to products that can save or improve their lives. You know, let's face it, the FDA has faced some challenges in recent years, and I think we should all be concerned with the fact that Congress has placed mounting burdens on the agency without providing a corresponding amount of resources. And we very much support providing the FDA the tools they need to to really keep up uh, with the pace of innovation. And and I think that that will help in terms of things that will make the process more predictable. For example, we've been calling for more guidance development. You know, there's been discussion around the 510K process and whether it's, you know, adequately rigorous, uh, which we believe it is, you know, the FDA can request any information that they deem is appropriate to clear a product. But over time, what's happened due to a lack of resources is that FDA has been unable to you know, publish guidance documents and things that would clearly spell out the types of information they're looking for from product sponsors. So uh, I think a big part of this is making sure the FDA is adequately resourced. Yeah, well, I think that uh, Dr. Peggy Hamburg would agree with you and and the American College of Cardiology would agree. Uh, Very exciting stuff, Steve. This has been helpful and useful. We've been discussing the future of medical device innovation with Mr. Steve Ubel of AdvaMed. Steve, thank you for being our guest. Dr. Luna, it was a pleasure. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.